Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Hahn's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehahn.com. In this episode, we feature a conversation between Alison Bechdel and Cheryl Strayed. Bechdel's comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, ran for 25 years and established her as one of the preeminent comic artists of our time. Her 2006 memoir, Fun Home, about her closeted bisexual father's suicide was a national bestseller and turned into a Broadway musical which won five Tony Awards. Cheryl Strayed is, of course, the author of the internationally bestselling memoir, Wild, and the novel, Torch. She is also the host of the award-winning podcasts, Sugar Calling, and Dear Sugars. This conversation is about Bechdel's newest book, The Secret to Superhuman Strength. The memoir is ostensibly about Bechdel's lifelong pursuit of exercise in one form or another. But like so much of Bechdel's work, the book is not necessarily about what it's about. Bechdel's obsession with exercise is, to be sure, driven by her desire to be physically strong and resilient. But it is also a tool to clear her mind and fuel her creativity and a rebuke of the misogyny she was surrounded by her whole life. And the book and this conversation takes us down fascinating side trips, including a tour of literary history from the English Romantics to the American Transcendentalists right through the beat poets of the 1950s. All radical in their time who pursued enlightenment in the outdoors and who, though separated by hundreds of years, are also dealing with remarkably similar ideas. Strait and Bechdel are also both candid and humble in this conversation, which concludes with a discussion about creativity and anxiety, and their struggles to produce new work under the spotlight of their incredible successes. This event was originally presented by West by Midwest, a collaboration between Black Mountain Institute, Literary Arts, the Wisconsin Book Festival, and The Loft, where this event took place as part of their Wordplay Book Festival. Here's Cheryl Strayed. Hi, Allison. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you so much for doing this with me. It is a huge honor. I can hardly contain myself. <laughs> it's really special to, to celebrate this book with you, who have written such an amazingly transcendent book about physical exertion yourself. So thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I thought about that connection a lot as I read this book. Um, we can talk more about that later. But first, I want to just get to chatting about like, how did how did this new book become? Uh, why, you know, so for those of you who haven't read it yet, it, it centers on essentially Allison's lifelong obsession with physical activity and fitness and exercise, the various things she's done, not only to strengthen her body, but I think to illuminate uh, her understanding of who we are. So Allison, I'm curious, you know, tell us the genesis story of this book. You know, this book has been gestating for, I feel like almost my whole life, you know, as long as I've been doing 
physical activities. Or maybe ever since, <laughs> I feel like in a, in a way, this book really is my own version of the thing I sent away for from a comic book as a small child. I saw an ad that promised the secret to superhuman strength. That's where the title comes from. You know, it was one of those bodybuilding or self-defense ads in the comic books. And um, I think maybe that's when I started like writing this book in the back of my head. I've just been collecting notes as I've gone along through life, N not even taking notes. It's, that's the thing about these physical activities for me is they're blissfully free of this symbolic register. I'm not thinking or taking notes or attaching, you know, concepts to this stuff, but that process has really interested me all along. Like what, what's going on in this other register? And I, I, as time went on, I felt like it was something I wanted to really try and explore in a book. Mm -hmm. I wanted to try and <laughs> perhaps ruin it, you know, take this thing that was so free of conceptual baggage and give it some. Uh, but I don't think I ruined it. I actually feel like it was a productive experiment. What I, one thing that really struck me over and over again in the book, you, you, you use this phrase that is the title. You know, you talk about you, you did this sport or this you know, thing and you go, did I find it? Is this, you know, have I finally reached that, you know, the secret to superhuman strength? And there's so much about the book, I think, um, that that is about seeking rather than attaining, you know, that you're constantly, the whole, the whole book is a journey of you essentially longing to, to reach some kind of state that maybe you'll never reach. <laughs> yes, it, it's definitely a, a quest and I, you know, it's ongoing. It's not like I had any like super clear moment of catharsis or becoming enlightened. That's part of the, part of the joke. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, I do think that the book is very much as much about obviously the, the trying to strengthen the body, but it's to find enlightenment, the, the soul's enlightenment. There's so much in this book that's about a spiritual quest, not just a physical one. And that those two things can be and very often are the same thing. Yeah. You know, in a way, I was trying to write about my whole life. I think I always, whenever I write anything, I somehow want want to write everything. I want to convey everything I've ever thought or felt in a book, which of course is impossible. Um, so this book starts when I was born and it comes right up to the present moment, which is an odd, it's a very large swath of time for a memoir to cover. You know, um, It's probably easier to tell a coherent story in a smaller time frame. So it's sort of experimental in that way, like just taking this whole life and trying to make some sense of it. I mean, that's what I love about memoir is that puzzle of trying to find a story in the, the randomness of our lives. Yeah, it's absolutely, you know, I love the organizing principle of, of your physical endeavors. And of course, at every turn, it becomes about so much more than that. I'm curious if you could show us, I understand you want to share with us, um, you know, before we talk more deeply about the book, I think it'd be cool for to see some okay. comment. Would you do that? Yeah, great. I, I can show a few little slides here. I'll share my screen. So this is the comic book ad that I responded to as a kid, mm -hmm. Secret to Superhuman Strength. Uh, I don't think I need to tell you. It did not 
impart to me the secret to superhuman strength, this little booklet that I got in the mail. Um, but it, you know, planted this, this idea in my head and it was just something that I sort of kept trying to pursue. I did all kinds of exercise as a kid and over the course of my life um, for all sorts of reasons, not, not just to cultivate strength, um, but I feel like I get all kinds of mental and emotional and psychological and even metaphysical benefits from it. Um, I have a tendency to get stuck in my head uh, and strenuous physical activity counteracts that. I think there's also an allure of self-sufficiency that <laughs> this superhuman strength idea holds for me. Um, the book proceeds through my life in chronological order. So there's a kind of history of exercise trends represented as I try one thing after another. Right, it's so interesting, Allison, in that way, because you did just bring me down memory lane, you know, but when, when, you know, back when we're girls, I remember being told you don't want to bulk up or, you know, there, there were certain, um, you know, eras of ideas of what, what was fitness and what, what wasn't. I think you, you wrote about that quite interestingly. Yeah, God forbid you should build up any muscles. <laughs> um, so I also talk about how the, that feeling of working out, um, the feeling of runner's high or that heightened focus, that's kind of a trance, um, is very similar to the feeling of being caught up in your creativity, you know, that feeling of creative flow, mm -hmm. and <laughs> which was something that came much more easily to me as a child than it does now. Um, so one thing I do in this book is I look at the relationship of a group of other writers to their creativity, including the British Romantics, Coleridge and William Wordsworth and Dorothy Wordsworth, who were always out walking in the hills and being very inspired by nature in their writing. And those guys inspired the transcendentalists. This is Margaret Fuller, and Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, another bunch of writers who were very inspired by nature and, and were hippies. These guys were like super hippies a hundred years ago before there was any such thing, which fascinates me. There have always, that's just, one thing I've learned. There's, there's always been hippies. We didn't call them that. Yeah. They outsiders, they were, they were disrupt, what we now say, you know, disruptors, but you know, they were creatives um, who had ideas that were outside, I guess, what we consider the moral zone. And yeah, I mean, it, it was this whole lineage of them, like from the romantics to the transcendentalists and, and the transcendentalists inspired um, the beats. I, I also write about Jack Kerouac and his book, The Dharma Bums in my book. Um, right. Yeah, but it, it was this chain of these countercultural people talking about, you know, Eastern ideas about divinity, um, talking about our connection to nature all through uh, the centuries. So yeah, I think um, maybe what all through the centuries is that each generation has to remember <laughs> that they didn't invent that, that sort of outside the box or, or newer radical way of thinking. I know. I know, I wish we could like hang on to this, like, and, and maybe we'd evolve a little bit. Right. So in the book, I also talk about my own efforts to meditate and to learn about this, this Buddhist idea of, about the self, you know, that, the, that our self is really the root of our suffering. 
but it's it's very hard going. It's nothing like the very blissful experience I had when I was 20 on psilocybin mushrooms when I clearly understood that I wasn't separate from everything else in the universe. Um, nature and flow, that's the end of my slides. <laughs> well, let's go back. I, I wanna, you know, you sort of walked us through many of the things that I really am curious about. And, and I do wanna go back to those earliest beginnings. I think that, as you said, this, this book uh, you, you tell it in, in chronological order. You were conveniently born in 1960. So you get to do these very, um, you know, a decade, decade by decade, you end yeah. like 2020, right? And yeah, so, you know, that first decade, I, I was really struck by, you know, what you longed for as a girl were so many things that you weren't allowed to long for you know, the clothes, the outdoor clothes that you discovered in the LL Bean catalog, the muscles that you immediately read, you weren't supposed to grow, even things like, you know, that sports weren't available to girls and in that time and place. And I think we forget that, that we, that, that that's, yeah. you know, really recent history. And I just, I'm curious if you can talk to us a bit about the way, the ways that sexism and misogyny and the kind of erasure of like girls not being able to be strong, how that impacted you. One thing I wanted to share with you is I have a daughter who's 15 and she's been a feminist since she was a kid and, you know, since she was born. And when she was maybe six or seven, I explained to her, she was asking about the Olympics and men's sports and women's sports. And I said, well, you know, men are faster and stronger. So they run separately. And she became furious with me. And she said, that isn't true. That is not true. That is not true. And what struck me is I thought, well, what if I, you know, what if we hadn't grown up with a narrative that girls and women were physically weaker than boys and men? Yeah, you know, it, it was so grating as a small child. It's hard to convey to young people today what it was like being a girl in the 1960s. It was like, you know, it was like Mad Men times a thousand. It was just like wall-to-wall misogyny, <laughs> 24 hours a day. Girls were dumb, girls were weak, girls were stupid. Um, it's, it's amazing any of us ever like grew to maturity at all. Um, and it was especially the, the, weak, the idea of weakness was really bothersome to me as a little girl. Um, Cause I, I knew I wasn't weak. I knew I was strong. <laughs> I was as strong as my brothers. <laughs> I was always beating them up. Um, you know, as soon as I could, I, I started learning how to strengthen my body. I found a calisthenics book of my mother's and it was amazing to me that you could actually do exercises and increase your endurance for a certain motion. And I, I could feel myself getting stronger, which was incredible. And I started running as a teenager too. And I love that feeling of endurance. So I was just kind of Figuring this out on my own, you know, uh, I mean, I had gym class, but gym class didn't really do very much for me. Um, I didn't really like gym class, even though I liked the stuff we were doing. But the, yeah, there was no athletic life for girls and barely for boys in those days compared with what there is now. Um, Title IX didn't happen till I was in high school. So, um, you know, there was like three sports for girls at my school. Uh, 
Do you in some ways, Allison, feel like having grown up in that kind of, I want to say cruelty, it's a kind of scarcity. It's a, it's a, you can't have this because you are female. Um, Do you feel in some ways that, that that actually increased your sense of I'm going to get this, I'm going to uh, prove my worth by using my body and doing the things. I, I do, but I also feel like I was, you know, what I learned as I went along is that it's a, it's just a very effective psych out technique. <laughs> Men tell women they're weak, tell women they can't do this or that. And it makes it, very risky to try those things. Like one thing I really regret that I never did at all was as a young person was skateboarding and rock climbing and these really cool things that boys I knew were doing, but it honestly didn't occur to me that I could do those things. That was like too risky and dangerous and I wasn't gonna try that. Right, you um, have this sense of your fragility. I, you know, I, I think too, very early on, I love this scene in the book where you're, you've started to uh, cross-country ski or Nordic ski, they call it, but, um, uh, and you're out there feeling what it feels like, not only just to be active and, 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 you know, testing your body, but you're in the natural world. And this scene you write about, um, seeing a dam break and this water come bursting down and you, you were in awe of it. And you say that you've witnessed for the first time that you had this idea that you deeply understood that you were not the center of the universe. I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about that and that kind of place where physical exertion and exercise and, and nature or the wild world come into play. Yeah, that, that moment was just one of those r- pivotal moments in life that really marked me. I, I was probably 16, I was out skiing along the creek in this beautiful Pennsylvania landscape at the time that the ice was going out on the creek and I just happened to be there when all of a sudden, and it had been a very unusually cold winter. We hadn't, this creek hadn't frozen over since I was a little kid. And it was, in fact, when I went and looked at the like historic records, it was the last really cold winter of the 20th century, but the creek had frozen and it was thawing and these giant chunks of ice were piling up and the water was coming behind them. And as I stood there, this huge dam burst and all these giant chunks of ice just went flying down the stream, groaning and churning. And I was right there. It was incredible. I remember just feeling a sudden sense of perspective, like all this stuff goes on without me all the time. I happened to see it and that was amazing, but the world is not revolving around me. And that was a wonderful feeling. It's a, I I had a very similar experience on the Pacific Crest Trail once I just saw, I was looking at a cliff and I just saw this huge piece of the cliff just dislodge and come crashing down. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't near enough that I was harmed by it, but I witnessed it. And I had that same thing, you know, it happens without us. I think that nature has this really interesting way of reminding us um, that we're connected even though we're out there alone, we're, we're connected to all living things, including the things that we think of as not living like mountains and, and rocks and dams, right? Um, yeah. We're connected. And, and maybe that's, I, I was really curious. I want to ask you about this 
these transcendentalists that you that you write about in this book that you're that you're making a connection between your journey on your physical you know the way you seek through the body but also the way you seek to to transcend yourself uh in the course of doing these various physical endeavors and you write about literary transcendentalists who have contemplated these questions throughout time can can you tell us a bit about that you know i have to confess that i i found uh emerson actually pretty rough sledding i i made some efforts i, I certainly read some of nature but i might have read all of nature but i i found that language a little too antiquated to really get i feel terrible admitting this i could see a little glimpses of something amazing that he was doing but uh I just, I just couldn't really get in the, in the flow of his language. I had never read much Wordsworth. It was fun to try and read Wordsworth's poems and, and learn what those were about. I, I love the fact that he was kind of revising his prelude about his like evolution as a poet over the course of his whole life. I feel like in some ways, my book ended up sort of mimicking some of these writer's work that I was writing about, like Wordsworth's prelude, endlessly revised story of his own development, um, Dorothy Wordsworth's journal. Like I never could have written this book without my endless and obsessive journal keeping over the course of my whole life. Kerouac's book, The Dharma Bums, was actually kind of a, his own weird version of the, the Diamond Sutra. And I feel like in some ways I'm, I'm copying both Kerouac and trying to give my own version of the Diamond Sutra in this book. So um, I feel like I was just doing a lot of copying of these people who I was writing about, including you, Cheryl. It just, <laughs> I, as I thought about doing this talk with you, I realized, oh my God, you used all these poems from Adrian Rich's Dream of a Common Language in Wild. Yeah. And I, I wasn't ripping you off, I promise, but but one of her poems from Dream of a Common Language is also like a through line in my book. But um... Allison, that when I came to that page, I was just like, ah, because so in Wild, I write about, I carried Adrian Rich's The Dream of a Common Language with me on, the, on my entire hike. All the other books, I burned them along the way as I read them. Yeah. But I couldn't do this. This was like my sacred text, right? And I read the first night I'm out there on the trail, I read her poem, Power. And, you know, I'm just, it's a very meaningful book to me. And so I loved, I actually love that. It's, you you use the word copying, but, you know, when you think about Emerson or Woodsworth or these writers you just named, you know, I, I don't think of it that way. That I, I really love the way that your work references explicitly so many other works. But I think in all of our writing, right? We're always even referencing implicitly. Like you weren't maybe conscious when you were writing about Adrian Rich, but we were there together. There was a certain thing that we both tapped into, a different version of the thing, and yet also the same thing. And so that that kind of um, legacy, I think, lives lives in a lot of us in different ways. Yeah, yeah. Can I just tell a funny story about how I did come to use that poem in my book? Please do. Um, I was doing a drawing exercise to kind of free up my drawing and to be more spontaneous. I was practicing brush drawings and I, 
I got a, a big scroll of rice paper and every day I would do a little addition to this drawing. So it was like actually one long continuous drawing. And if I screwed up, it would kind of ruin the whole scroll. So it was, I had to really focus on what I was doing. And one day I made my drawing and as I was doing it, I, I drew myself reading a book because that's what I'd been doing all morning, reading biographies of all these writers I was learning about. And the words transcendental etude came into my head. Mm. So I just wrote them down in cursive on my drawing and I didn't know what, where it had come from. I had to go Google it. And first I got Liszt's piano pieces and then it said transcendental etude, Adrian Rich. And I thought, oh, right, that poem. Right. And I, I hadn't really remembered it. I, I honestly was read more of Rich's essays than poems when I was young. But when I looked up the poem, it was very, uh, very familiar. You know, the, the stuff about no one ever told us we had to study our lives. And I felt like that really was kind of what I was trying to do in this book, like trying to understand my life. And that, that poem, which I still don't understand, it's a very long, incredible poem, but it has the word life in it about 40 times. And I feel like it's a, it's a poem about being alive. And the more you read it, the more is revealed to you somehow. I think it's interesting. I, I love that you wrote that in the book that, that there's this poem you love and even though you don't understand it entirely, you've read it all these times. And I find that that's true over and over. You know, once I wrote about The Dream of a Common Language in Wild, so many people then were like, well, ex explain this book to me. Tell me the meaning of this book. And I am like, I don't know. It's, it's I think what we're responding to Obviously there are all kinds of things that are meaningful to us in those words, but I think what we're responding to maybe is a recognition. Uh, you know, here you are, you discovered that book, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but when you were really stepping into the truth of being a lesbian, of like who you yeah. actually were instead of who you were expected to be. And yeah. maybe you just recognized yourself in, in her words. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's really a poem also about transformation. I mean, that whole book is about her transformation and different ways women have transformed themselves and the necessity of transforming ourselves, uh, which is, you know, which is what Wild is about and which you did so beautifully. Uh, like, I, I, I envy the clear arc of transformation in your book. I feel like in my story, over the course of my whole life, it kind of loops around. It's not like a clear through line. It's these, this spiral of coming around and around to the same issues over time. Uh, well, thank but you. Getting a little... Thank you for that. And, and let me just assure you that my, the book I'm writing right now is, is like that kind of loop. I mean, I think one of the, the, the the hike provided me with a sort of narrative arc that fits neatly into a memoir. But as you said, you know, I think the complicated thing about writing memoir, and certainly I, I saw this in, in, in this book, this new book is you're writing about your whole life uh, and trying to tell, you know, a particular story. And yet you've got all this material and how do you find your way through it? And yeah, I think, one of the most moving and powerful aspects of, of this book for me that just absolutely blew me away was the, the ways, how vulnerably and how honestly you write about creativity and your own anxieties and struggles with 
doing your work, which I want to say I deeply relate to. And, you know, Allison, I, it was all I could do to not be just like, okay, you know, I'm going to drive to Vermont and then we're going to take a road trip together and talk about <laughs> Talk about how to work. Because that would be awesome. Funny, like, I think obviously, you know, you've been given a genius grant. We we both have best-selling books. And, and from the outside, people think, oh, okay, well, they just do their work and they just la-di-da, they know how to do it. And, and that's not the truth at all. So can you talk to us first about, you know, how difficult it has been for you over the years to create, to find that flow, as you say. Um, to, to me, you know, to not procrastinate all that stuff that you write about in the book. Will you share some of that with us here? <laughs> I, I don't want to seem too self-indulgent. I mean, it's not like I have to go like into the coal mines every day. It's, it's a pretty good job. It does have its difficulties, but they're not so bad in the grand scheme of things. But I, you know, it's hard when you have to make stuff up out of thin air all the time. I guess for me, it's a, the gradual realization that it doesn't have to be from thin air, that if you can like quiet down and open yourself, it's all there, but it, that's very hard for me to get to. It's very hard for me to let things happen. I'm always trying to control things, always trying to push and force, you know, it's, it works up to a certain point. I, when I was younger, I could, you know, work, on a deadline for a couple nights straight. Like I just stay up and push through and get something done, but I can't do that anymore. You know, my body won't let me do that. So I'm having to find other ways to just use my creative energies in a more sustainable manner. How but you, you know, that's what the whole, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to blather. And have you found the way, please, oh, Allison, tell us the way. I mean, what I'm curious about is you write a lot about struggle in this, in this book and, and even the struggle to write this book. It's very kind of meta in that way. And I, I'm curious if you, over the evolution of your creative life, if you've come, to, you know, the, in this book, you describe a sort of increasingly greater sense of peace with yourself in, in various aspects of your life. Certainly in your previous books, you're reckoning with your father in Fun Home, you're reckoning with your mother and are you my mother, among many other things, of course. And in this book, I do think in so many ways, you're ultimately reckoning with, uh, you know, your, that, that sense of seeking, you know, that, that, that seeking the, 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 the secret, of course, to superhuman strength, but also to kind of an ease when it comes to doing your work. And I'm curious if it has gotten easier, you know, what's that arc? Um, it has gotten somewhat easier, you know, along with the exercise and other things I've done, I've also done a lot of therapy <laughs> and, um, I, I've learned a lot in therapy about my creativity and in and, and these supposed blocks that I've created for myself. Um, I, you know, I, 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 God, I don't, I'm not good at using words. I'm not good at speaking. I need to just like be in a dark room by myself and I'll be fine. You're doing um, great. <laughs> I wanted to say that one thing I learned in therapy, which was on one level about relationships and intimacy, but in another level helped me with my creativity was learning to see ways that I had kind of 
given my own creativity over to my partner, Holly. When I met Holly, I was entranced by her very easy connection with her own creativity. She was a painter. She would just sit down and make a painting and enjoy it. And it was not a problem. And over the course of our relationship, I just kept feeling like she's got the real flow and I'm just struggling and stuck. And finally, my therapist pointed out to me that I, I had like, that wasn't true. I had just handed that over to her somehow. And as soon as I saw that dynamic, I was freed of it, you know? So that was, that was one big thing that has helped me to have more ease with my work to just realize I, it's mine, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe I'm curious if you think that, that, that kind of resistance uh, is part of actually your creative process. Like what if you, I mean, the thing that I've been thinking about lately in my own creative process is that resistance and that fear is part of my ability to make it. It's not the, the thing that obstructs me from making it, but it's part of me actually being able to make it. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I do believe that on some level and certainly all the, all my struggle paid off. So therefore, shouldn't I keep struggling? Shouldn't, isn't it good for it to be difficult? So I don't know. What, what do you think? That's it. That's what I'm saying. It's like, if here, I mean, that's, what's so funny is you're saying how hard it is for you to do this. And yet what you've done is all of this, you know, decades of brilliant work. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. I'm just fascinated by it. I think that you write about it, um, really powerfully and honestly, like I said, and I think too, one, one thing we haven't touched on, we only have so much time today and I will turn to the audience questions soon, but you know, the ways that therapy and Buddhism and meditation and mindfulness, all of these things that are about uh, sort of seeing beneath the surface, uh, you know, acceptance, you know, all of those things, I think that you have to, uh, be confronting that all the time too. And you're writing that you're doing in so many ways, the same kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a spiritual quest, <laughs> but you know, it didn't used to be as a child. I, you know, it was so easy. I, I feel like that, that image sticks with me. Um, you know, I, I feel like I want to get back to that childhood state. Uh, just like I want to get back to the feeling I had when I was tripping when I was 20. Like those, those feeling states remain like goals for me. Mm -hmm. And they are in so many ways the state you're seeking when you were seeking the superhuman strength, I imagine. Yeah, those things for me actually are like kind of a hack, like kind of a a shortcut into that feeling, uh, which is so much harder to get to creatively than right. physically. It's, it's much easier to just go for a run than to write a book. <laughs> right, and then you have to do both. And there you are both very prolific and incredibly fit, Allison. So there is an <laughs> So I think I, I, there are so many millions of things I haven't asked you and I might butt in during the audience questions to ask some more if they, if they uh, you know, prompt me, but I'm gonna turn now 
to some questions from those of you out there who are who are listening um, and watching us, I guess. I guess you can see us. Um, this is from Susan Stinson. She says, I'm shy hey, to Susan, talk about- hi. Oh, you know Susan, okay. Yeah. Hi, Susan. Um, Susan is a wonderful writer. I, you know, that name sounds so familiar to me. So maybe I know Susan too. I'm shy to talk about spirituality or religion to try to put to words to, to the ineffable. Do you have any of that kind of hesitation? Does drawing move you through it? If yes, does bodily exertion do this in a similar way? It's kind of what we were just talking about, but uh, chat, with, please address that. You know, I, I too have a difficulty talking about the ineffable. I mean, that's, that's the nature of it. I, I, I hesitate, I even stumble with the word spirituality um, I, I would like to think that all the stuff I'm writing about is all measurable and empirical. Uh, and I, I think it is, but it does veer into this um, zone of the numinous and where language just becomes difficult, where language kind of fails, um, which is an interesting place. I, I find that exciting. And I guess I'm, I was hoping in a way that the fact that this is a graphic book and that I'm doing a lot of drawings, that my drawings, especially drawings of me outside in, in nature could take up some of that uh, slack, like things I can't really put into words or I don't, I don't have the skill to put into words. Ralph Waldo Emerson did, Cheryl Strayed does, uh, but I need the pictures too. <laughs> well, so go ahead. No, I was going to say the picture, there are several questions here about drawing and writing and, you know, th that relationship, do you draw first, do you write first, um, does the drawing feel like physical, a phys it's a physical experience in the way that the yeah. writing, or is, or is that not the case for you? No, it is, that's, that's actually something I thought about a lot as I was drawing this book, is what a gloriously physical activity it is to draw. I'm holding a pen and dipping it in ink. I'm dealing with paper and I'm, you know, I draw for hours on end and it's like a, a sort of endurance exercise. Um, so I feel like something, there's something physical that happens with that line coming out of my hand onto the page that is different from what I might type or the, the stuff I do on the computer. Um, it feels very, it is very embodied. And I think it can't help, but uh, I, I feel like drawing is, is a kind of tracing of the world for me. Like I'm, I'm, sh I'm showing you what I'm seeing, but I'm also touching it. And then you're holding it in your hands. And it's like this transmission, you know, this touch-based transmission. And I saw in this book, you did some new things, right? The the color and that, can you tell, what, what, why did you decide to do this differently? What was that um, like for you? Yeah, I never did a book in full color before. It's an, a lot of work. I knew it would be a huge amount of work. Even one color like adds a lot of work <laughs> to black and white comics. Um, and my partner, Holly, the artist helped me because uh, there was just too much work for me to do in the time I had, she was able to come on board and color these images that I was making. Uh, and 
it was a funny process because it wasn't like she was sitting there with a beautiful palette of watercolors. She did all the colors you see in the book are actually gray ink. And, and she was doing them in layers of cyan and magenta and yellow, like creating color separations basically that then got turned into color on the computer. Um, it's a very geeky process. I won't go on anymore about it, but the, the end result is I think these very luminous washy uh, colors that I really like a lot. Yeah, they look almost like a watercolor kind of quality. But not they quite. are. She, I mean, she was she was doing it physically too. It wasn't on the computer. She was painting with a brush and gray ink. So all that stuff is actually painted. Yes. So you would? How would you, I mean? That's fascinating. You know, it's a it's an interesting collaboration. It, you it was what you wanted to do. Then she would paint over it, or would there are there parts of it that she actually originated? Well, <laughs> it was it was a process determining that, you know, I'm used to working alone. I, I've rarely collaborated with anyone, but here was a necessary collaboration. And I tried to control as much as I could, as I am wont to do by showing her, I want this to be red and this to be green. I do a sketch with colored pencils and then hand it over to her. But inevitably she ended up having to make a lot of creative decisions on her own. And I had to let go. I had to turn it over. So that was kind of cool because I was like having to live out the thing I was writing about you know yeah I mean in the book you you this is why I feel like I can ask this question (laughs) because in your book you write a lot about your romantic relationships and the the impact that your work had on them that very often your partners felt that you kind of were choosing work over the over everything else yeah. So what method with Holly, Holly was just come aboard and I'll put you to work. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been over a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, I've always been very rigid about my work, about staking off this, the world of my work, and it would always come first. And with Holly, that wasn't quite as possible as it had been previously in my life she wouldn't let me get away with that and I've gradually gotten much better at like taking time off and having weekends and stuff um but it was fun to have her in in these final throws of this project with me usually that's a a lonely place when you know you're finishing something on your own and you you might be around other people but you're still in your own world right Um, but I'm in this case, we were together in that world. And that was really great. Oh, that's beautiful. That's absolutely fascinating. Now, one other question about the, the, that I was curious about that I've seen, see a few people asking is, you know, what is that relationship between the drawing and writing, which, which comes first? Is it, is it always that you have the language or that you have the image? I, it looks like I'm writing first. If you were looking over my shoulder, I'm sitting on the computer and I'm typing, but I'm writing in a drawing program. I've got panels drawn on the screen and I'm placing my text in them and I'm envisioning what the images in those panels are going to be like. That's how I write. I'm not actually making those drawings, but I kind of know this is going to be, you know, I know what that picture is going to be. Um, and 
before I hit on this technique of, of writing in Illustrator, um, when I was when I started writing Fun Home, I I just started with a word processing document because I didn't know how else to do it, and I I you know I try and to say this is panel one, this is panel two, like maybe like a comic book script would look, but I couldn't really, uh, I couldn't write that way. I couldn't figure out where the story was going. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very much visual in my head and, and, the, and the images are driving the story along with the words, but you just don't see the images till the final stage, if that makes any sense. It does. I think that's so much, um, it, it seems to me, my, my sense of, not only your work, but frankly, of so much creative work is that that you make this plan and then so much is kind of born in a, in a sort of intuitive sense that, that the work takes you in the direction that it needs to go. Well, yeah, the cool thing is when I do start drawing, everything changes, the, the words change. You know, I start seeing ways that the, the drawing can convey information that I thought I had to impart in, in the text. And so that, that calculus is always shifting when, once the actual drawing starts. And the idea is to get the words down to the, as few as possible and to show as much as I can in the image. Mm. That's, that's so interesting. So here's a question from Heather. She says, nature and flow and movement are interwoven in this text as you use them in ways to get out of your head. But in turn, it seems they've given you clarity to return to your head, which then fuels your art. Can you talk a bit about that cyclical process of how you think, find inspiration, think, write, repeat, or whatever it looks like for you? That's interesting. Yeah, it does. Um, it all does come back into my head. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I made a joke earlier about how I took this thing, this kind of wordless realm of life. Of, of exercise and physicality and pinned it down with words. But um, there's something freeing about that actually. Like I, I feel like I've articulated something, you know, that was worth doing, but I had to go through that whole process, like taking it from out there and running it through here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm feeling very inarticulate. I need to have a, a whiteboard and I could draw some pictures. <laughs> It's, I, I think I'll speak for all of those people out there listening who we can't see that you're being quite articulate indeed. So another question from A, hear this book, you know, and those those of you out there who haven't read it yet, uh, one of the delights of it is, is that Allison really does walk us through, you know, this, this exercise, this sport and that and yoga and, you know, we, we get all, we get so many different activities hiking and biking and just all of all of that. Uh, but so A's question, which I think is, is really a very interesting one. How does your book speak to people with disability? Oh, that's an excellent question. You know, I feel like um, when, I was, when I was younger in my twenties and hanging out in my lesbian feminist community, it was actually like, it's kind of, I had to be secret about my exercise life. Like it, exercise was not something that you flaunted. And, you know, it was very much, I, I, I felt like it, it, partly it was like flaunting your able-bodiedness, partly it was flaunting your fitness or, and maybe this 
implicit assumption that you were exercising in order to lose weight. You know, that was exercise was just kind of an anti-feminist enterprise. So it was something I, I honestly didn't talk about much when I was younger. Um, I, I was doing karate in a feminist context, so that was okay. But other stuff like running or weightlifting, I just kept that under my hat, you know? But now, but I couldn't help feeling as I wrote this book, like, yeah, I really am like flaunting my able-bodiedness in this, in this way that might seem really annoying. Uh, and for a while I had a strand of the book where I was making that explicit and talking about it. And it, it just, it didn't fit in the end. And I, I just decided uh, I'm just gonna talk about loving, how I love to do these things and hope people don't take it amiss. So I can certainly understand if people do, but uh, it's something I get a lot of pleasure from. And I thought, why not just talk about that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're um, one, one question from Jamie Jacobson is I'm curious how long it takes you to finish one of your books. Um, sometimes it's discouraging to me how long it takes to finish a drawing or even a short comic. Jamie writes. Oh, comics is such a time intensive activity. This book took me eight years. I mean, that's like a crazy long time for a book. I was sort of distracted and busy for some of it, but, um, and actually the, the drawing was the least of that. I did most of the drawing in like a year um, of, of like 12 hour days. But uh, I feel like it's, you know, it takes a long time for ideas to gestate, for, for um, a real story to emerge. I don't like having to churn stuff out uh, very quickly. And I like having, having time to marinate in ideas. And fortunately I've been able to afford to do that. Like uh, it's worked out so far, but it takes me a long time. So we are running out of time. <laughs> so I wanna just end on a, maybe a couple last questions from the audience, but then I, you know, I have one, I'm, I'm sort of inspired to ask my own based on this final one that says, speaking of collaborations, about a dozen audience members in the chat want to know if the two of you, that's me and you, Allison, um, will co-write slash draw a road trip memoir. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you took it literally when I said, but here's the thing. One of the things I, I have realized over the, the time that I have known you through your work, because we've never met in person until today, we're not even in person, but yeah. we've never spoken directly, is that I was actually born just like an hour and a half from where you grew up in Pennsylvania. I was born. What? Yeah. It's a little known because I people think of Minnesota. I grew up in Minnesota, yeah. but the first five years of my life, I lived in Cambria County. I was born in in what used to be called Spangler, Pennsylvania. That's now Northern Cambria or something like this. They changed the name of the town. But it's just wow. an hour and a half. I, I Google mapped it yesterday. It's just an hour and a cool. half. So maybe we could start our road trip there. Spangler, that's a very local Pennsylvania name. I, I knew Spanglers. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, let's I'm... do it. So on that note, after when we finally, if, if it takes us a while to get to that road trip memoir, what are you, what do you imagine next? I mean, I know it's hard to be immediately saying, here's the next book I'm writing, but where is your imagination taking you uh, next in your literary life? 
and where are your physical interests taking you in your in your uh, your exercise life? Um, you know, my next book, I have a sense that it's going to be about well, it's going to be about money, but also I think about time. Uh, I, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm running out of topics, you know, exercise was like something I felt very passionate about. So I knew that there was a book there for me, but now I'm like, what else do I care about? I have always kept very close accounts of my financial life. So I'm thinking, I've just had the sense that I can do something with that. I don't know what yet, but I love the way that, a, you know, a ledger is just a, a, a list of stories, like everything you buy is a transaction, is something that happened in your life. And uh, I'm gonna do something with that somehow. I'm gonna use my decades worth of financial records. Have you literally, have you kept a ledger of everything you've spent? Since I was in my thirties. I mean, and, and I have random little like um, physical ledger books that I kept like, when I started when I was a kid and I would put my allowance and my babysitting money and eventually how much money I spent on pot. You know, I have some of those old ledgers, <laughs> which I'll maybe make use of too. That's amazing, Allison. So what about the exercise stuff? What are you into these days? I've been running. Um, running has really saved me over the, over recent years. I started doing it slowly and at in like 2014, 2015, and started being able to go for long runs by election day, 2016, <laughs> which really, really helped me so much. I, running is salvational for me. It really, really calms me down. So it kind of got me through the Trump administration without losing my mind. Mm. Yeah, well, hiking does the same for me. That's what we should do. Like like Gary Snyder and Jack Kerouac. Let's go. We should. Oh my God, that would be so much better than than the Dharma bombs. Are you still doing long distance hikes? You know, I haven't I haven't done a truly long distance hike for some time, but I do longish distance hikes. You know, uh, take a week backpacking trip here and there. So I uh -huh. the next thing um, I was meant to go hiking in Wales uh, this summer, and that got canceled because of the pandemic but it's I'm going to be going I'm going to Iceland this summer I'm going to do a bunch of oh hikes. wow still my I favorite. really want to go to Iceland me too I'm going in August that hey, sounds amazing come on come on uh, come on come on up and we'll hike a mountain together that would be amazing I'm going to crash your trip okay Allison Bechtel it has really been a pleasure to talk to you and uh, you know we we touched on so many different things that this book touches on, but I, I want to just say that in closing is that it, we begin with the body and the ways that you have explored all, all of the, so many different ways of exerting yourself physically. But I think what was most powerful and moving to me is just the vulnerability and candor with which you write about how you are seeking to sort of meld that, you know, to transform the, to transcend the body and mind and be spirit and soul. And that was really, really moving to me. I loved this book. Cheryl, thank you so much. What an honor to get to talk about it with you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Alison Bechdel in conversation with Cheryl Strayed. This has been Literary Arts, the archive project. It's a retrospective from some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. 
Join us next time for The Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from The Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn, on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at colehahn.com. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.